Welcome to Things I Didn't Learn in School. Today, my guest is Dan Zwern, and he has a story which I found almost biblical. The first part is bright kid from Pittsburgh, workaholic. He is reading 10Ks in college where other people are playing beer pong, and he has the vision for a company he's going to found, which is sort of like a modern-day merchant house of the type that was in Europe and Asia hundreds of years ago that's central to all sorts of complicated financing but can be very profitable. He is wildly successful. In his 30s, he's worth hundreds of millions of dollars, and he's managing over $10 billion. Then, disaster. He discovers what's called a non-material accounting irregularity. For anybody that works on Wall Street, you know a compliance violation strikes terror. The SEC begins a formal investigation of his fund, even though he self-reported. And at that moment, his life turns upside down. His accountants refuse to complete the books because of the SEC investigation. Investors liquidate. His wealth plummets. Many of his friends are deserting him. He's looked at by some as a criminal. And at the same time, in 2008, while the SEC is doing their investigation, Madoff collapses. He had nothing to do with Madoff, but the SEC missed repeated warnings. Moreover, one of the early investors of the fund, a person who Dan basically had no familiarity with, is convicted of procuring a child for prostitution. That person's name? Jeffrey Epstein. After four years, he's taking solace in Stoic philosophers from 2,000 years ago. From self-reporting to vindication, the SEC closes its investigation and finds Dan innocent of wrongdoing. He starts a new firm that's doing great. And in 2018, the CFO of the former firm is convicted. This is Dan's story, and I found it remarkable. Dan Swern, welcome to Things I Didn't Learn in School. Thank you. Appreciate you having me. So why don't you just set the stage for a little bit? Probably there's some people who know you, but many people who don't. Just describe a little bit about who you are, what your profession is, and a little bit how you came to this. Basically, I have spent almost my entire uh, working life as a combination of an entrepreneur and an investor. And I say that in that I was intrigued in my early 20s about the notion of how an investment business could itself be a great business. You know, how could you, as an entrepreneur, create an investment business that was more than just you no know, security selection or position selection, but that kind of created an ongoing, defensible, Warren Buffett-style moated franchise? And so that took me into a lot of reading and thinking about history. And from that history, I created a model that I've been employing since the early mid-90s to create what I hope to be a wonderful and valuable investment business. Take us a little bit like in your 20s, that is a very precocious thought to be thinking about a structure of that scale. It's relatively unusual in the field of broadly described finance to try to have aspirations to create that type of vehicle. Was there anything particular that sparked that? What sort of home did you grow up in? Like where was it? What was, was there anything, a class you took, a book you read that all of a sudden got you thinking? I would say necessity is the mother of invention. Yes. I grew up in suburban Pittsburgh uh -huh. with no knowledge whatsoever of any of this, what happens to Wall Street, how capital moves, how business works. I had a vague sense you could spend 40 years as an executive at Westinghouse to be a doctor, dentist, or lawyer, but it, it was not clear how the world worked, either in a narrow commercial sense 
or in a broader sense, it was a very pleasant, if not highly bountiful existence. Except that it, we're roughly the same age, sorry for interrupting, a lot of capital was moving out of Pittsburgh at the time. Yeah, well, this was, you know, in my early years, this was kind of 1970s. Pittsburgh had seen better days. Yes. It was the other end of the post-World War II boom. There was tremendous involvement of unions in the steel industry that basically destroyed the steel industry in Pittsburgh and elsewhere. In the 70s, it was the third largest corporate headquarters in the country. And, you know, everybody was leaving. Tremendous inflation. And you're kind of wondering, how does this all work? What, what's going on here? And did mom and dad have any clue? Or are you sort of looking around, looking at adults and being like, I'm asking questions. They're not giving answers that I can understand. And so I'm going to keep searching? Or? Well, I would say now, you know, I, I would say my father was a an accountant at a, at a local hospital for 35 years. Huh. And my mother was a, uh, got a PhD in basically a combination of, of literature and philosophy with a focus on Emerson and taught English and related classes at colleges around Pittsburgh. So that actually became relevant as I kind of thought more deeply decades later, but certainly did not make any impact. Well, there's a little bit, there's a, from what I understand, there's a little bit of a PhD and a little bit of an accountant in your approach. Something like that. But neither they nor anyone whose parents I knew really had any sense of just how things worked, just none. And I was fortunate enough to get accepted to a free program for Pennsylvania students focusing on business at the Wharton School as a junior, which helped me get to a program called the Management and Technology Program. Uh-huh. To my knowledge, it was the first program where you could simultaneously get a degree in, in business and engineering as an undergraduate with two different degrees. And you certainly had to work quite hard to do that, or at least I did. But importantly, when I was there at the University of Pennsylvania, you know, it was kind of all-you-can-eat knowledge, yes. not only in terms of the coursework, but the older students that I could ask questions to, the alumni that were willing to speak that I could ask questions to, the professors, that some of whom um, sponsored uh, independent studies that I did, or alternatively for whom I worked uh, as they did their research. And so my knowledge curve went up quite a bit in terms of starting to create a framework by which I could look at the world and how things worked, both in a micro and macro sense. What I found was, you know, again, I had grown up in a world where you were kind of fixed as a professional of some sort, and you had a steady living all the way through your old age. And so I actually found myself kind of slowly creeping up a rope of greater comfort with risk, personal risk. So you could be an accountant, and maybe then you could be a lawyer, then you could maybe be an investment banker, then maybe there are these guys who owned enterprises, and then maybe there are guys who kind of controlled entities that owned many enterprises, and you could kind of keep pulling yourself up this intellectual ladder and and understanding how to create more asymmetry for your kind of personal outcome by bearing very, very thoughtful risk. And furthermore, it showed me that particularly in business, there was a whole world where you didn't have to wait until you were 60 to be doing interesting big things because the only kind of notion of that that I had experienced with, and not directly, just on the news or whatever, were these CEOs of you know Gulf Oil and Westinghouse and these kind of large enterprises, all of whom seemed to be pretty old white guys with silver hair. And so there was this whole world of, hey, wait a second, this could be decades earlier that we could kind of catapult ourselves forward. But at the same time, wait a second, there's this risk. How much of it can be isolated and mitigated such that my personal trajectory has as asymmetric a character as possible? If you were to describe to a person who's not an investment specialist what it is that makes an attractive opportunity for you. I think the fundamental investment that we do 
as we call it, we lend a nickel against a dime or buy a dime for a nickel, meaning it's pretty darn obvious that our investment is going to do okay and we're going to get well paid. So then the question is, why do we get to do that? And the answer to that is, how do we set up, set ourselves up in a way in terms of the resources that we have, the resources we're able to access so that we can create situations where both buyer and seller or both borrower and lender can say, well, the normal price for this risk is X, but we're going to pay, pay extra uh, because we have some reason why we're willing to do that and why it's logical for us as a counterparty to do that. Some investors would say, listen, there simply is no such thing as a sure thing. It does not exist. Yes. And it sounds like hearing to you, you would you you would differ with that. And you would say times there there is there is a sure thing if you actually do your homework. Is that correct or not? I would say it's not. What I would say is there are times when the probability of success is extremely high on a position by position basis. And the way that I can collectively reduce that to zero is by having a lot of those bets simultaneously. That that makes sense. So spreading your bets. So can you give an example, a single specific concrete example that again, a generalist would understand of a situation that you said, listen, the, the, the risk of us not getting repaid on X is extremely low. Sure. So as an example, and a, and a, and a simple one, we might have somebody with a piece of real estate. In fact, we did have someone with some real estate that was very fancy in uh, a very fancy town. There was a few different pieces of real estate and uh, he didn't manage his overall affairs terribly well. He was an entrepreneur and so he didn't have kind of a W-2, right? So the banks would say, well, my goodness, he doesn't have a steady income, but he's a wealthy guy. But he had a, he had a very large net worth tied up in a very complex business that he didn't administer well, let's say. So he said, okay, I need some liquidity to help my business, which I kind of know is really valuable and I need it soon. I get it. Uh, but I have this wonderful, these four pieces of really wonderful real estate that are worth X, right? And, you know, if I had a, a steady income with a W-2 and I had six months to wait for, you know, Bank of, uh, you know, XYZ to provide it to me, I might get a very nice, you know, 5% loan. But you know what? I want it in three weeks. And if I pay three times that for a what I think is going to be a relatively short period of time, maybe it's a year because I'm going to take the excess proceeds and put it into this wonderful but badly administered business I have that's worth a lot. It's no big deal. So I realize I'm completely aware that if I had all the time in the world and everything was tidy, I could pay X to a bank, but I'm willing to pay for the alacrity with which Arena will uh, provide me this capital. Got it. Which is literally, I don't know if you've read Balzac, but there's a character there that is literally doing this exact same thing in the 18th century. So this is an old form of providing liquidity and, 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 and making money. Yes. In fact, the case that I, I kind of learned of this as a notion that could be repeated and thoughtfully structured by looking at history. Because yes, you're right. There have been people who have been doing versions of this. Some people say this is the world's second oldest industry. One thing that has come up in a lot of my conversations with guests is the role of happenstance or chance in life. 
And you kind of have this, for lack of a better word, almost biblical story of rise, disruption, reflection, and then sort of rise again. Take people through that thing, if you would. And, you know, what are your lessons from going through this? I, you know, I've read about it and I just try to imagine psychologically what those, each one of those chapters would be like. And I actually can't imagine. So I'm very curious. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host Matt Heslin brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. Well, I would say, one, I'd say what you read is shorter and more straightforward and less painful than the facts. And in fact, the, the facts themselves collectively are so left-tailed that they almost beg credibility. Yes. You know, it, it's kind of, you know, certainly it was Kafkaesque to say the least. Funny, I thought of the same thing reading it when I was imagining the, the being accused and trying to go to court. I mean, literally that sort of sense. I was like, he, he was right. That's what, that's what a good book can do. Well, and, and I think what you find when those things happen is that there's a correlation among these. They don't happen independently. They gain severity by virtue of the presence of the other things happening simultaneously. For the listeners, why don't you just, first of all, because we're, we're each on the same page, but I don't think they are. Yeah. So very simply, I lived for 35 years, very reflexively assuming uh, without a lot of thought that if you just kind of do what is generically referred to as the right thing, mm -hmm. you know, good things happen. You know, I didn't have any real reason to think that wasn't the case. You keep your nose clean. You work 110% with a kind of commitment to excellence in whatever you do, big or small. And, you know, it seems to win. You keep winning, right? And then in my my former enterprise, basically, I, I as a way to kind of continue to improve the systems and infrastructure, I hired some additional people. And they, long story short, basically told me that our my old firm CFO was doing a series of things that were arguable in their materiality. And that's a whole special term, by the way, yep. but made worse by their having been purposefully obfuscated, right? And obstructed in terms of their view. And that unfortunately, I had a big four accounting firm yep. who for the entirety of the time, missed it completely. And so we all, we found those things and we reported it to them and then we reported it to the government. And so the thought was based on a, on a precedent called the Seaboard precedent, when you find a bad thing, it's not too big of a thing. You do a big study, you pay a lot of money, you go, we found this thing, it's not good. Here it is, it's all fixed, it's incredibly detailed and it's, gonna, it's wrapped up in a bow. 
And in prior times, the government said, okay, totally understand that can happen in and out in, you know, four months and you move on because you found a thing, you raised your hand, you studied it intently, you are um, uh, detailed it uh, as in as great a level of detail as possible and you fixed it all. So up to that point, I just assumed you get, uh, you know, a gold star and move forward, right? Having learned a lot and on you go. Yeah, this is literally what everybody tells you tells you to do, that if you're in the situation, you call it out, oh, my bad, yeah. I want to be over transparent with you yes. and try to, boy, I feel terrible that these things happen, but here are the facts. You can look at this any which way. Yes, and and certainly we would have hoped that the the accounting firm, Pricewaterhouse, would have done that, but they decided not to. We would have hoped that the government would have said, we want to encourage people to do this, right? Because that's the right thing. That's how you make sure no one hides anything. Right. Self-reporting. And let's talk about this. But they they decided, no, we think, you know, you're an awful person of some sort and we're going to show you. It's a very unique thing when you uncover a crime, report a crime, and then somehow are accused of the crime that you uncovered and reported. And it's uh, certainly bewildering and surprising, particularly if you lived assuming in a very casual way not re- not terribly reflective. Hey, do the right thing. Good things happen. There's a resolution to this, and you're and you and you're back, and you're you know the letter from the SEC, and your firm has been very successful. What is it like to be on the receiving end of this? Are you sleeping? Are you eating? How do you feel walking down the street? Can you concentrate? I mean, you're it's there's no way you could be successful at your business if you weren't highly rational and logical, but money, guilt, all these things, they're very, very, emo- shame, they're very emotional, emotionally packed experiences. Yeah. Well, uh, it's jarring, to say the least. Particularly, again, it's not like I grew up, you know, being tutored by Plato. I had not been terribly reflective up to that point. I grew up in suburban Pittsburgh, work hard, do the right thing, good things happen, so it was very much upside down. What I was experiencing in a tangible way was so, so incongruent, so utterly illogical, so quote unquote wrong, that it certainly made me want to think and learn and figure this out because I was clearly missing something. Over many, many years, you know, that got me toward thinking about a whole different ways of many, many different ways of, of understanding quote unquote the ontology of the world, how it works, right? You can't skip over that. So what what what, what pause on that for a little bit. And what what it describes some of those insights or reflections. Uh, for me, in a relatively long and winding intellectual road, I, I ended up basically it's it it's stoicism, where the kind of thought process of originally from Socrates leading down into Epictetus and Zeno and Cleanthes and and all through into the Roman Seneca. Uh, Cicero, etc. But fundamentally, being very, very clear about what you can control and not control, understanding that if something is out of your control, there's no, it just is, you can't expect anything from that which is out of your control, mm. because it, there is no ought, as David Hume, you know, talked about, there's only is, there is no ought. And so, practically speaking, what I've seen is, for instance, my sense is, that when people are very particularly good in a 
whether it's in business or politics or entertainment or different things, they hear less and less truth. And, and so I heard, uh, I would say, all, on average, as my business thrived, that how wonderful that business was and how wonderful I was. And I said, yeah, I guess I must be right. And then without any change in who I was or what I was doing or what I had or how I had operated for my entire life, I heard must be incompetent. You must be immoral. You must be bad in some way. You've done horrible things. You you're a misleader. You're a liar. You're just awful. You know, pick the way. Were you hearing that from others or from yourself or some combination? Uh, others implicitly or explicitly. Right. Because, you know, uh, as as a as a very wise invest, investment person said to me one time, 90 percent of what they read about us is false. Yet I believe 100 percent of what I read about other people. <laughs> you know, people don't have time. They don't do the work. And frankly, you know, there's a this notion of schadenfreude. You know, even those who are supporting you and saying how wonderful you are, they may not be your friends. Right. They may not be so supportive. Mm. And so when you, you know, when you go from you're wonderful to you're horrible to now you may be kind of wonderful again, you know, you don't give it a lot of credit. And, and you realize, in fact, as wonderful it is, for instance, to have a fabulous reputation, reputations aren't in your, uh, under your control, only character is. All I can do is do the right thing, keep doing the right thing, and focus on character because even as uh, and, and I went through quite an odyssey kind of going, you know, down and up, et cetera, again. But I certainly saw from one meeting to another, I went from, you know, job to, you know, criminal, back to job, back to criminal, right? Meeting to meeting. So meeting, meeting what? That you were with investors that you were talking with the SEC or, or you're saying based on people's reactions? In investors, you know, potential counterparties, partners, other things. I see. I got the... The benefit of the doubt, then I got none of the doubt, then I got it again. You know, it's random. All you can do is, again, focus very intently on those specific things that are within your direct control, where you have direct agency. Mm. Do the right things with those things and pay no attention to anything else. Did the culture at your sort of your 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 the new firm change from the culture of your previous firm? And if so, how? I would say I perhaps as a manager, as an entrepreneur manager, got a little more experience. Um, I would say as an example, I had a very another another smart guy tell me that he viewed firms and, and companies as as big dinners. And sometimes there are people at the dinner that was the weird uncle, but they were productive and you kind of put them at a table, you know, over to the side somewhere, but you worked around them because of their capabilities. Mm -hmm. I turned that on its head and said, I don't care how good you are. Um, I need you to be, have character and be ethical and be civil to your peers. And then you also have to be commercial or do whatever your job happens to be. But if you're not those first things, I'll find someone else who's capable. Uh, I just got to go with people that I can kind of live with and trust and who are who are decent first. And unfortunately, in our business, there's a lot of disincentive to that, because, for instance, if you eliminate someone, then X, Y, Z investor might say, well, gee whiz, you've had turnover. Isn't that horrible? Et cetera. And in fact, that was exactly the right thing to do. How do you how do you filter for character? 
now. Is there a way to? Uh, it's very hard. I believe you only see it in action and you, in, and you see it in experience. And, and in fact, mm. you know, I, I would think about horizontally what I've experienced is that people who are not great in their personal activities are also not great in their commercial activities and vice versa, right? Mm. You are what you are. And then I think, unfortunately, on a temporal basis, the person who has exhibited nothing but great character all the way through when pressured can, in fact, undergo change. And, and some, some people say pressure reveals, right? Mm. And you actually dig underneath. And it's, it's not that they were so wonderful. It's just they've never actually been put in a corner and had to choose between character and its consequences. Mm. In my own situation, I had a whole string of decisions that I needed to make where I had to choose between cataclysmic potential negative consequences and character. Which in fact happened in a way. Absolutely. I could have ended up far wealthier out of it, but with a severely damaged character. Right. Because there was a whole group of things I could have done that were what I would call within the four corners of legal documents that were not intrinsically moral, that would have left me wealthier to the tune of nine figures that I didn't do. You know, the consequences were brutal. These things don't happen as a binary. They happen in a series of decisions that go through a decision tree. You actually read up as an example on PTSD, you'll find that no matter the type of situation that brought on PTSD, one of the big common themes is people who are encountering certain annihilation and have no way to kind of turn back, right? And whatever that circumstance is, Mm. could be war, could be abuse, could be lots of different things. And that notion does things that effectively freeze episodes in people's lives, right? That they have to kind of think about over time. And so this notion of highly likely annihilation, but choosing to take it and kind of bear the brunt of it is a brutal, brutal choice that sometimes people have to make. Is there any aspect of this that the success, not necessarily of you, but of the firm bred any of this? In other words, I've, I've sometimes felt that sometimes any person's greatest strength is their weakness at the same time. Not always, but sometimes. And was there, is, is there a sense that the firm was so successful that in some ways it corrupted the judgment of some of these people who you wrestled with? Or was that not an issue, you think? I don't know what drove them. What I find in their case and in many cases I encounter is as a commercial matter, it was utterly illogical. Right. I find many evildoers could have come out commercially far better just doing the right thing. Yeah. There was no rhyme or reason to it. And I see that over and over again. But I would say that when I when dealing with all of the external parties I needed to deal with, that success brought on a level of whatever you want to call it, Schadenfreude or otherwise that was far more vicious than I could have ever imagined. When those folks, many of whom you've never even considered enemies, think that you're dead and buried. It's like watching your own funeral. You see who's spitting on your grave and you see who's crying. And I saw it all. Unbelievable. And there's another element to this that one of your early investors is Jeffrey Epstein. Mm -hmm. Yes. And this is all going on. I guess the Madoff was happening background and roughly concurrent with this at the same time. So it's just an unbelievable uh, vortex. The founder of Hybridge, yep. which was one of the most successful funds ever, yep. put me into business, had a very close relationship with this guy. Right. I 
met him a few, for a few minutes a couple of times. At no time that we ever took money from him did we understand that he was a monster on multiple levels. Right. So we never made an affirmative choice to take the money or be involved with a monster. There are situations out there publicly with regard to the founder and, and their relationship that I had no idea of and never knew, never could conceive of. But, it, you know, he was an, apparently an investor in many, many hedge funds. It just happened to be, yeah. you know, I got to, <laughs> I got to be listed on it. I would note when we gave our money back to our LPs, the, the only thing that was relevant was he actually decided because he was so special that he needed to be a, kind of treated better than all the other 160 plain old LPs. And again, we said, no, that's not right. Even in the midst of this cataclysm from the government, everybody gets the same. In fact, what else is there to do? He said, no, I'm effectively, I'm special. I get treated special. I get to do whatever I want. And your other 160 investors don't matter. And uh, give me my money. And we said, no. And he sued me personally. He tried to annihilate me. And we settled nothing. We won everything. We treated him no different than anyone else. His behavior was despicable beyond imagining. And that was nothing compared to what the world later understood or I understood. I've had investors say, well, geez, what about that? Isn't that horrible? Wait, aren't you terrible? So actually, every single interaction that me and my firm had with him we were doing exactly the right thing. We never affirmatively understood what he was, and we stopped him from doing wrong to other people. Back to the stoicism thing. You know, the image I have in my head of somebody who's swimming in like beautiful waters, but there's like a huge great white just to the left, and they don't they don't recognize it, and 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 not necessarily that they could have recognized it either. I'm just saying that that it's humbling to realize that a guy as thoughtful as you is still that degree of separation off from people who can be so disruptive. Look, you're talking about managing 300 people and a thousand investments. Yeah. People spread across the planet, 80 joint ventures with another 800 people. You're talking about a very large enterprises with a lot of stuff going on. It's, it's the power of randomness, basically, to me. It's, I, I'm not surprised that it happened. Like, you roll the dice enough of these types of firms that, you know, you're going to run it, and it, you just happen to be the person. What I used to say is the bus can come up on the sidewalk and hit you. Yeah. It can. And it can happen at any time for any, for any reason or no reason. And it changes the way you look at everything after that. I mean, I'd say in my case, the range of what I considered possible for human behavior just grew exponentially relative to what I had thought about before. And I just thought how silly I was, uh, not, not realizing that. It just made me look at the world differently. And I think that it's, these, these types of experiences are painful in that regard. There's a famous bluegrass singer passed away, Doc Watson, who has a quote. He says, a part of the heart gets lost in the learning. And I think that's very true. Well, yeah, there, there is no wisdom without extreme pain. That's my understanding. Yeah, probably profound wisdom. That's true. And the fact that the fact that it's repeated that you could read stuff that people were wrestling with 2000 years ago when they wrote it down and it rings true to you. I think that that's quite powerful, too. And maybe that aspect of it is a little bit beautiful, too, that you could find solace in that, that that is the continuity of human experience. Well, it's only been three or four hundred generations, right, since then. Humans haven't evolved that much in a, in a couple of thousand years. You don't need to go to a TED Talk. Plato's dialogue will cover a lot of ground. <laughs> Great. Thank you for your time. Well, th thank you for having me. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. 
thank you for listening to today's episode. We're genuinely touched by all the support. If you want to see more of this type of content, sign up to my Substack and become a paid subscriber that helps supports the team. Uh, you could also submit a review to Apple Podcasts, which draws other listeners to this. If you have any questions, you can email me, paul at paulpodolsky.com and follow me on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. Thanks so much. Today's podcast was produced and edited by Dave Manahan.